0: Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government, for teachers, students, and citizens.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Welcome, everyone, to our final TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar in this series uh, on landmark Supreme Court cases. These Saturday webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach here at Ashland University, uh, also co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program. And uh, if you've joined us before, you know that the that the that one of the purposes of these webinars is to pull together some interesting thinkers and scholars uh, on these Supreme Court cases. And we also encourage all of you to join in our conversation today by submitting questions in the chat feature, and we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. You'll also in the next week receive a link in uh, an email that will allow you to request a certificate of participation and that email will also include a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. Today we're discussing uh, a 1985 decision, New Jersey v. TLO, and I'm really happy to have um, with us today two people who know a lot about this subject. Uh, we have Eric Sands of Barry College and Jeff Sickenga of Ashland University. Uh, both of you. Uh, Teach courses in our master's program on uh, the Supreme Court and constitutional law, and I believe you have taught together in the past. So I'm happy to bring you back together, if only uh, via the interwebs here. But but uh, it's good to have you both back together again on this topic. And thanks thanks for for joining us this morning.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: So no, this is this is right up your guys' alley. Fourth Amendment case. Um, uh, I, I thought maybe what we do. Um, If you don't mind, is just take us through sort of the broader significance of this case. Perhaps start with, if you don't mind, uh, uh, how did this case get before the Supreme Court and and why was this, why did this case become such an important, uh, uh, lead to such an important decision in 1985? Would either of you please just sort of introduce us to this case?
2: Sure. I'm happy to start if you don't mind, Eric. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Well, I I think everybody knows the, roughly speaking, the facts of the case. Um, The the student in um, Piscataway Township in New Jersey uh, is suspected by the principal of um, uh, breaking school rules. Uh, They search. They she's brought down and to the office. They search her um, purse. And in the process of the search, find uh, stuff that indicates that she's been breaking school rules. And so she actually has to be, ends up uh, in front of juvenile court for delinquency. So it becomes a pretty serious situation for her, both civilly and criminally. And uh, I, one of the interesting things to me about this case is um, the original question that the court was faced with when when the case was presented to it was not the was not the question they ended up deciding on, and this, this is interesting how the Supreme Court can kind of morph itself when it takes a case. (laughs) Because the original question was actually whether or not the exclusionary rule applied to um, applied to searches done by school officials and the Supreme Court, when they were presented with that case, Uh, That idea actually said, well, we need to back up a little bit because we need to decide, first of all, whether or not the Fourth Amendment applies to school officials and then what it means to have an unreasonable search. Let's not assume that it applies to school officials and let's not assume it's an unreasonable search. And therefore, the only question is whether the exclusionary rule applies. The evidence can't be used against this girl. But let's take a step back and decide these more foundational issues. So this case at first argument did not seem like it was going to be such an important landmark, but it turned out to be because the court went on to hold yes, the Fourth Amendment does apply to school officials, uh, for the first time a clear, unambiguous ruling on that. And and this is as Chris said, as late as 1985 they had not really decided that question, and and the second thing of course they decide is that um, search. Means something quite different when it's done in a school by school officials than if it's done by a police officer out out in the in the regular adult world. So to me, those are a couple of really important aspects of this case that didn't start out that way but ended up that way.
1: So, so just this is really interesting. So, um, do they ever answer the original question then in the process, Jeff, regarding the exclusionary rule?
2: regarding the exclusionary rule well because yeah, the they held rule. no they didn't actually reach the issue of the exclusionary rule because they held that this was a permissible search so exclusionary rule of course only applies if the I if see. officials conduct an impermissible search and then the question is but do you get to keep the evidence in or not
1: i see okay that's interesting so they didn't really need to answer that question so the court took it upon themselves to broaden the scope. Why why do you think that is, Jeff or Eric either one? Why did the why does the court why did the court broaden the question? Good is question. That, is that too hard to ask?
2: <laughs> well we don't know why exactly because of course yeah. we, we're not privy to those things behind behind the scenes at the court. Um, it would be great to be a fly on the wall. But I, I think it's because they realized that, that people were making assumptions in the lower court and among the attorneys. They were making assumptions about whether the Fourth Amendment applied, wh- whether that this was in fact a search that was impermissible, that were just not legitimate to make. Occasionally, the court does do that. It'll take a big step back and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! There's other issues that are that need to be settled first.
1: I see. Okay. So um, I guess my I guess my next. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. Does so this changes the role of school officials with regard to searches permissible searches and seizures is that is that is that correct
2: yeah i mean I, I you know i can even respond to one of the questions that's been yeah, posed about the about what about parents and aren't the school officials representative of parents and what's interesting is in this case they held the court held very clearly that um students schools are not in loco parentis So schools do not have the authority over students that parents have over their children. Um, And so therefore the Fourth Amendment applies. I mean, the Fourth Amendment does not apply if you go search your kid's room. So, But it does apply if if, uh, school officials search students. So that was actually a very significant ruling and that had been coming for a while. Cases like, I'm sure the teachers know, Tinker versus Des Moines the First Amendment case, do students have First Amendment rights in schools? And the court held in 1969, yes, they do. So here they kind of extend that logic and say, yeah, you don't have First Amendment rights against your parents as much as teenagers would like that. Um, and and you don't have Fourth Amendment rights against your parents, but you do have First Amendment and Fourth Amendment rights uh, in your school because your school is not in place of the parents.
1: I see, okay, oh, that's very interesting. Um, so what i am getting, I'm going to pardon my ignorance on this. I'm trying to take in the significance of this as you're laying it out. So I'm just throwing this out here. We're going to have to discuss it yet, but maybe we can come back to this later. It seems from what I'm hearing so far that the, that the effect of the decision in light of what you're just saying about the parents and, um, and, uh, uh, uh and, uh, uh, sort of stepping back and looking at the fourth amendment more broadly, the, the. The authority of school officials over children is expanded somewhat as a result of this decision
2: or is that, um, not, is that not I, I'll let Eric uh, take it. That's a that's a good that's a hard question actually. It's
1: hard. Yeah, I'm sorry. So that's why I hesitated to throw it out there so early. But Eric, do you have any thoughts on this or want to add anything to anything?
0: Well, it, I would say in some places this meant that that school officials had expanded authority over children. Um, You know, to to that question you had asked about why does the court, you know, sort of change the the, the fundamental question in the case, I think another factor in that is that state courts were actually badly divided um, on this question. Uh, You had some state courts that had ruled the Fourth Amendment did not apply to school officials because they act in loco parentis. Uh, So, you know, you don't need warrants. You don't need it. You know, you can just search, you know, the kids anytime you want to. Um, some had ruled that the fourth amendment applied, but that the exclusionary rule did not. So even if the search violated the fourth amendment, any evidence found could still be used against the student at trial. Uh, some held that the fourth amendment applied, but that the school official needed only reasonable suspicion to search. They didn't need probable cause. Um, that was the case in New Jersey. That was the, the position the New Jersey Supreme court took. Um, and then at least two courts held that the fourth amendment applied and probable cause was required in order to search. So we're, we're looking at a situation, you know, among the states where there's a lot of differing opinions on exactly what the scope of the fourth amendment is when it applies to searches by school officials. And I think one of the things that's going on in this case is the Supreme Court is looking to provide clarification, um, to these state courts. And helping them to kind of unpack exactly what's allowed and and what is not. Um, in In terms of you know what what else is interesting about the case, you know there's there's a lot of times we we talk about why does the Supreme Court make decisions and and what sort of motivates their their thinking. Um and you know sometimes it's it's just ruling on the law, but there are other cases where public policy seems to play a major role and I think this is one of those cases. Um, New Jersey presents a tremendous amount of evidence during the oral arguments uh, about the amount of violence in schools and the amount of drug use in schools, and uh, essentially arguing that school officials need to have broad discretion in, in being able to search kids for suspected wrongdoing, and that you can't tie their hands too much um, or else schools are just going to become jungles uh, where nothing, you know, students aren't going to learn anything, nothing's going to get done, uh, it's going to be a free-for-all. And you, you notice Justice White even makes reference to these studies in his majority opinion. Um, he talks about the fact that we, we've seen these studies, and, and one of the studies that was referenced uh, held that upwards of 3,000 students per day were victimized um, by violent crime in schools. Um, now, I mean, I, I'm not sure where that study came from, and I'm not sure about its validity. But I think this had a big impact on the justices, and I, I think uh, played a role in in getting them to think about trying to find a balance uh, between, you know, applying the Fourth Amendment and ensuring that students had some Fourth Amendment protection, but not going so far that it was going to significantly going to cripple or handicap school officials in being able to maintain order and discipline in the schools.
1: That's a, those are great points, Eric, it, that, especially the the first, uh, your first answer on the question of why that the federal, again, part of the sort of the um, uh, general efforts of the courts in the late 20th century to establish sort of uniform federal rules regarding these things. That's a that's a great point. And on your second point, um, just, to, just to throw this out there, uh, do you think that the court did a good job of Achieving what what you say it was trying to do, and establishing that balance between um, uh, preserving some Fourth Amendment rights for students, but not tying the hands of school officials too much. Or, um, I guess maybe that's a question about sort of you know the the outcome of the case and the lasting impact of the case. But uh, I hadn't thought about it in terms of striking, trying to strike that balance the way you laid it
0: out, Eric. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would answer that, that I'm not sure the court gives us a whole lot of guidance when it comes to what reasonable suspicion actually is. Um, remember, the, the New Jersey Supreme Court essentially ruled the exact same way that the Supreme Court does. Yeah, you know, they, they essentially apply a reasonableness standard um, to these, these school searches. The difference is that the New Jersey Supreme Court said that the search was unreasonable and the Supreme Court says no, we find it to be entirely reasonable. And when you get into the rationale that the two courts use for why one of them thought the search was unreasonable and one of them thought it was reasonable, I and mean, there's a lot of splitting hairs going on. <laughs> yeah, there's there's there, there there's a lot of a very very nuanced, you know, distinction being made between you know, what could be reasonably inferred by a school official and, you know, what experience would lead them to believe that perhaps drugs would be present uh, from the presence of being of rolling papers in a purse and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So I'm I'm not really sure that the court places school officials on really firm ground um, after this in, in knowing exactly what a reasonable suspicion looks like and and how it should be applied um but again you know it, it based on other rulings that the court has made you know that they they seem to be deferring a bit more to the uh, the judgment of the school administrators uh than than questioning it yeah i mean that's that's a, that's a, that's a great point i mean to try to
1: define in advance what's reasonable is almost an impossible i mean you would think that to say it has to be reasonable means we kind of will kind of know it when we see it right I mean it's almost impossible to to define in advance what's what's reasonable Uh, so I appreciate the difficulty of that task which makes me wonder again why the court consistently seems to want to define you know what's reasonable in various cases but since you raise this point Eric, um, uh, Larry submitted a question uh, expressing some frustration at not being able to find good uh, distinctions in his sources between reasonable suspicion and probable cause. So, would one of you uh, care to, to to help Larry understand the distinction between reasonable suspicion and probable cause? That <laughs> may be harder than it sounds, given what Eric just said about trying to define reasonable suspicion.
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I really appreciate what Eric said there. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, probable cause requires evidence. And I think, you know, if you want to say what what's give me one bright line distinction between reasonable suspicion and probable cause, I think that's that's one that you could certainly use. Probable cause, there has to be some actual evidence of wrongdoing. Now, it doesn't have to be evidence that would convince a jury. Right. That's reasonable. That's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's not the same as probable cause. But the cause part, I think, is important. There has to be some kind of cause causality there and that requires some kind of evidence. Reasonable suspicion, the court has sometimes called it individualized suspicion, sometimes they call it articulable suspicion. It's not a hunch, it's not uh, something just didn't seem right, it's a little, it's more dialed in than that. You have to be able to give reasons when you're asked, and they have to be specific reasons, but you don't have to have evidence supporting those reasons. And that's that's roughly speaking how the court has worked, including in cases like um, a Terry v. Ohio, the Stop, Question, and Frisk case. It's a standard that the court has applied a lot, especially in the late 20th century. I see,
1: that's that's very clear. So in this case, in the New Jersey TLO case, the, uh, was it the principal who did the search? I can't remember the specifics. Whoever did the search of- TLO, oh, Yeah, it's a vice
0: the principal. principal.
2: The, the vice principal, principal, right.
1: Did the search, there was no evidence that uh, that they they found marijuana in the, in the purse right and some
2: right. money and some paraphernalia and, but, but as eric a, said they found they found rolling paper rolling paper
1: okay right. but they but he didn't have evidence in advance to to justify searching the purse for probable cause which makes this a case of reasonable suspicion and I, I guess the ground for the reasonable suspicion in this case was that the student lied about not having smoked in the bathroom is that is that am i thinking right. of this
0: correctly
2: that's right. So there's really two things, right? There's the cigarettes, but then there's the marijuana. Ah, so there's right. probable cause to believe the, the the kid is breaking the cigarette policy because she's seen smoking. Uh, okay, right? so it is
1: probable cause.
2: Okay. For, for that, but not for the marijuana. I see. Because they don't find the marijuana in the first search, so then they say, but they find the rolling papers, and it's just, hmm, rolling papers, what could that mean? Uh, that's, that's not quite probable cause if you were going to bring that to a judge and get a search warrant. Ah, uh, okay. So,
1: okay. So, okay. I'm still trying to, this, this is, this is great. So the, so the, was the, the other issue in this case, whether or not, um, they, the, 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 the vice principal was searching for evidence of cigarette smoking, but
2: found marijuana and drug, drug paraphernalia. Well, didn't find marijuana first, right? Found rolling paper.
1: Oh, they found rolling paper first, but they did find a small amount of marijuana,
2: didn't they? Afterwards, yeah, Af- oh. after they found the rolling paper. So how do you go from rolling paper to another search of the purse, yeah. and a, a really thorough search of the purse? How do you go from the rolling, the c- you go from the cigarettes to the rolling paper, because, you know, that's sort of a plain view thing. They found it while they were searching. But how do you go from that to searching for marijuana? Well, you say, look, I know how things are in schools. If you find rolling paper, you a, it's pretty reasonable to suspect that somebody's got some marijuana too yeah that's that's almost classic reasonable suspicion okay is there evidence of marijuana um which, which there could be like the smell or something like that which would not be marijuana but would be evidence of it no that wouldn't be but if you can reasonably suspect it given what you know as a vice principal of, of, a, of a public high school i see
1: okay so by the way larry says thanks you know he said that was perfectly good clear distinction. Um, So, uh, gosh, you know, what, I guess again, back to uh, uh, in light of what you're both saying, and Eric, feel free to jump in at any time if you'd like. Um, Reasonable suspicion then. What what does that mean then? (laughs) Again, this is a tough question. How close can we get to saying what's, because it sounds like, because the court leaves this so vague in a certain way,
2: well look, look let's I don't want to uh, I'm always willing to criticize the Supreme Court but oh, okay. they are interp- they are interpreting the 4th amendment which says no unreasonable searches and seizures the amendment begs for interpretation right
1: yes yeah it does
2: okay so um, look they do give us two criteria for judging the reasonableness of a search they say it has to be reasonable at its inception and it has to be permissible in its scope so it's Got not it. utterly amorphous. They have, you know, is it reasonable it's an inception? Did they have a reason to conduct the search? Okay. And and that means some kind, at least it appears from this case, although later on we realize it doesn't mean this, but it looks like in this case, it means you gotta have some suspicion of that individual. Yeah. You can't just say, well, a bunch of freshmen are we suspect they're selling drugs or they're, all, they're, they're smoking cigarettes, so we're going to just search a bunch of freshmen. This case doesn't look like it permits that. It looks like it's reasonable, and exception means you got to have some suspicion of that individual kid. And then the scope of the search, you can't say, well, we suspect she has cigarettes and maybe marijuana, so we're going to search her purse, and then we're going to search every other thing she has and all the lockers around her, just okay. as an example. I see. Um, now, later on, they, they seem to actually permit, as Eric was saying, later cases of drug testing that they use TLO to justify those cases, very closely divided courts seem to go far beyond this case. Okay. But wow. at least in this case, it looks like there's some criteria by which you can say, was that a reasonable suspicion or not?
1: Yeah, okay. But see, again, pardon me for getting hung up. That was perfectly clear, Jeff. Um, and I am learning a lot from this, but I'm still hung up on, <laughs> I mean, who, what, again, maybe it's an impossible question, what limits what is and isn't a, a reasonable search? I mean, if, uh, stick with the example of schools here, since this is a school case, um, you've had a student who is um, who has been a, uh, a drug violator in the past, or has been caught with marijuana in the past, isn't it reasonable to say six months from now that we do another search given the fact that that student has a history of of uh, being associated with drugs or having drugs? I mean, doesn't doesn't this open it up what's reasonable in terms of being a reasonable suspicion? Doesn't it open it up really to the discretion of people? And then who, who ultimately then is to decide whether that search was reasonable or not? It's gotta be the courts in the end, right? Which leads to another question. Doesn't this, wouldn't this decision uh, potentially lead to more and more cases of reasonable suspicion being brought before the courts. Okay, I'm asking way too many questions because I'm still trying to, sorry. Well, I'll
2: let Eric jump in. The only thing I would say is, yes, it does, and it has. (laughs) And so what the courts end up doing is deciding the Supreme Court and the lower, especially it's really the lower courts who do most of the work on all this. Okay. um, They end up deciding on a case-by-case basis, was that reasonable suspicion? Wow, was there yeah. reasonable suspicion? And then they have to weigh the privacy interests of the students, as the court says, right? You have to balance those against the government interest that's at stake and you have to weigh them and then courts do that weighing. And then the question is, was that a reasonable weighing? Was that a constitutional weighing? And you don't know that until the Supreme Court makes another decision. Yeah. So they end up taking on, when you, as soon as you incorporate the fourth amendment against school officials, and so much searching goes on in schools as all yeah. the folks here listening know, um, and has to go on right. as soon as you do that, you're going to have a multitude of cases in litigation. Yeah. yeah and, you, that's, right. and that's what happens. Yeah. Okay. So they try and look, they later on, they try and set some parameters. So, um, you know, what is it about uh, a few years later in the Vernonia case, they hold that, uh, the, the blanket drug testing policy for all school athletes is constitutional. And then they go on to say, because you were talking about, what about if they're repeat offenders? Then they just say, look, drugs are a problem across schools, particularly in, and for athletic teams, we can't have it. So they, they uphold uniform um, completely, uh, without individualized suspicion, uh, drug testing of athletes. And then they wow. extend it even later to drug testing of all students participating in extracurriculars. They uphold a school district policy on that uh, in 2002. So you know, you say where? Well, where does it stop? Well, it went that far at least. (laughs) And then they walked it back a little bit in 2009 in a case where there the uh, school officials strip searched a 13-year-old girl um, for ibuprofen, and um, that there there the court held that went too far. So how you know? But those are the probably three biggest cases that Supreme Court cases at least. That have come out of this, and, that and have tried difference. to define more clearly what is reasonable and not.
1: And in the case with the girl with this, uh, the search for ibuprofen, was the was the uh, argument that that was an unreasonable search, that that they had, it was based on a uh, not reasonable suspicion of something.
2: Well, yeah, what they argued there was they took the two-part test. Is it reasonable in its inception? And then is it permissible in its scope? And they said it was reasonable in its inception. They had reason to believe this girl was violating school policy about medication, which did not allow ibuprofen in the schools, but the uh, unprescribed from the school nurse. But they said, but it was not permissible in its, but it was not permissible in its scope. They went way too far in searching her, given the kind of stuff they were searching for if they were searching for meth then maybe you could strip search but if they're searching for for <laughs> 400 milligram ibuprofen yeah. you can't go that far wow
1: that's amazing that's amazing um
0: yeah and, and chris I'd, I'd i'd add to that i mean you know again the court i think is looking to strike a balance here um you, you know we we don't want you know the fourth amendment to be so encompassing that it's impossible for school officials to uh, maintain order and discipline in their schools. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I mean, the court doesn't want to allow, and they, they mentioned this in, in the opinion. You know, New, New Jersey in the, the re-argument uh, takes the position that uh, essentially school officials are in loco parentis um, over students. And so the Fourth Amendment doesn't really apply. And it's a little weird because in the first argument, they actually said that they agreed with the New Jersey Supreme Court on the reasonableness standard. And then on the reargument they said, well, no, we're now going to argue about uh, in loco parentis. But during the oral arguments, you know, the justices peppered New Jersey with questions about, well, what kind of searches would you, w- would you be okay with? Would you be okay with strip searches? New Jersey said yes. What about strip sur- searches by people of the opposite gender? Yeah, that's not a problem. And then they even went so far as to say, well, what about two-way mirrors in the bathrooms? And New Jersey says, yeah, that's not a problem. Wow. wow. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're dealing with here is we're, we're not really comfortable opening up the door all the way <laughs> to allowing school officials to just search willy-nilly in any way that they deem appropriate. Um, there, there's got to be some check on this. There's got to be some, you know, re- restriction on the ability um to to investigate uh either school wrongdoing or or state or federal law violation um but yes this is going to create a lot of litigation but there already was a lot of litigation um on this issue this is giving some clarification um by the supreme court on exactly what the issues are how they should be applied um and trying to help courts in resolving um what what exactly should be going on in these types of cases
2: yeah, look, Eric's absolutely right about that. The only way the Supreme Court could have got put an end to litigation of students against teachers and school and officials would have been to agree with New Jersey that schools act in loco parentis, and therefore they can do basically anything they want to the students. Uh, which is, by the way, a position that Justice Thomas has taken since 2007 in the bong hits for Jesus case the, on free speech with students. And he just said, no, we need to go back to the, he says the original understanding of schools were that they acted in place of private tutors and that the parents transferred authority to private tutors to school their children. And that authority was transferred then to schools. So schools do act, as he says, in loco parentis. So Thomas has actually adopted New Jersey's view, but nobody else has.
1: Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because, okay, so this is, that's very interesting, Jeff. So Does this decision, um, insofar as we understand it, or uh, insofar as it sets parameters and clear guidelines, does this establish school officials as something like, um, well, let me put it this way, does this actually give school officials something like police power? Because it seems to me that um, conducting searches is a a police power, is it not? Is it traditionally considered a, a police power of the state? So does this by by, uh, 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 conf- uh, uh, you know, sort of confirming that um, uh, that school officials can conduct these searches on reasonable suspicion, is does that make school officials? Um, not sure how I'm, I'm not formulating this question very clearly. Yeah, but it almost makes them agents of the state. I mean, they are. We know that in a certain sense, but this this case really seems to affirm that.
2: This case makes that clear for the first time. Ah, okay. In in. in in with respect to the 4th amendment at least, yeah. Okay. That's right. I mean, look, you could you could <laughs> one of the other arguments that New Jersey makes that in, on the re-argument that Eric was referring to is that not only are the schools at, in loco parentis so they can do whatever parents can do to their kids, but they also argue that students have no expectation of privacy. And this goes back to 1967 in the Katz case where they said 4th amendment is violated when you violate someone's reasonable expectation of privacy. And there, the court holds right. If people remember, there's two prongs to that: Do you exhibit a desire for privacy, and is society prepared to accept that as reasonable? And there, the court actually says, in, in the New Jersey argued in the reargument, well, students have no expectation of reasonable expectation of privacy in any items that they bring with them to school, because um, there's no reason to bring personal items with you to school. So if you bring a personal item, you should not expect to have any privacy in that. If you bring a purse with you to school, don't expect to have privacy. Um, and the court actually holds, and New Jersey compared it to prisons, and said, look, prisoners don't have any expectation of privacy. And the court's response was, well, schools aren't prisons, even if they feel like it to students sometimes. <laughs> That's
1: great. By the way, I'm I'm chuckling a lot in this, partly, partly because uh, First of all, it's just amazing how con- complicated and convoluted this all gets in light of various decisions that the court makes, and then they have to come back with a ruling later to clarify the previous ruling, and then it's modified. I'm just it's it's just it's just amusing. And I know it's serious, but but it's it's just amazing. I'm also chuckling because I'm just always impressed by how much you two, especially, know just the, how you can memor- keep track of all this stuff. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> but.
2: Well, I'll, I, when you're talking about law, what is well, Oliver Wendell Holmes' dictum. I, I won't get it right, but I'll paraphrase. It's sort of an, an ounce of history is worth a pound of logic. Yeah, right, right, right. Some, yeah. Something that's like cool. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, on go so that note, so that's different. But to go back to your point about, can I just your point about? Um, so what? Who are what are school officials? Is a nice way to is a nice question. And the court says, well, they're not parents, but they're also not prison guards so what they're somewhere in between there they they call them they have a special custodial relationship is the way the court puts it so teachers are custodians Principals are custodians of the kids they're not their parents but they're not the police or prison they're not prison guards and they're not quite police either so they're they're they have police like powers they have parental like powers but they're none of those things. That, that really is at the heart of the complexity of the cases and the complexity of the case law, because they just, what is a teacher? Are they a kid's parent? Well, sometimes they really do act like a kid's parent and help them out. Sometimes they act, have to act like a prison warden. <laughs> and sometimes they kind of really, what they're doing is somewhere in between that. And I think it's that the, the reality of the complexity of a school is responsible for a lot of the complexity of the decisions
0: it's very well put That's really yeah well and put. I, I i just add on to that really quick you know yes school officials are responsible for enforcing federal and state law uh there's no question about that but they also enforce school policy which may or may not have anything to do with legality and illegality and this case i think illustrates that um, tlo was caught smoking in the bathroom That's not illegal. (laughs) That's just against school policy. And so I think that custodian analogy works really well. Um, Is they're enforcing a policy that's set down by the school in order to, again, maintain order, discipline, um, you know, to to, to keep the school, you know, uh, uh, an environment conducive to learning, um, but, you know, isn't necessarily involved with, uh, you know, finding somebody guilty of a crime um so they they have responsibilities outside of those parameters as well
2: and and can i uh, one of the uh, folks asked is there a difference yes. with the difference if, would there be a difference if the school was private uh, it it depends on the school if this a private school as everybody knows i think can require things of students and parents that cannot be required of them in a public school so you can you know for example religious schools you can be you can be asked to say if your kid wants to come here you have to sign that you agree with the following things they could be theological statements they could be school discipline issues um all of that kind of stuff and i mean it doesn't mean that the constitution or the law doesn't apply to private schools at all of course but but what parents can transfer a lot of their authority to a private school that a public school cannot require them to transfer. And I think that's that that it could be a significant, but again, it depends on the private school. It's not automatic. It depends on what they require of parents and children coming into the school.
1: And what, Jeff, is that because of the sort of consensual nature of private schools versus the mandatory nature of public schools or?
2: That's yeah. right. and And because the court has held that private schools are associations and have the right of association according to their own rules of association.
1: That's very interesting. Okay.
2: Very yeah. Good. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, good. That was a great. I'm glad you asked that question or answered that question from Jim. I thought that was a great question. And then um, Jeff, just a quick clarification. You mentioned the Katz case. Yeah. Can you spell that in case anybody wants to look that up?
2: Oh, sure. It's K-A-T-Z. K-A-T-Z. Okay. And it's it's just a it's an interesting case because it really sets the prior prior to the prior to 1967. Um, As a lot of people I'm sure know, the Supreme Court had pretty much held that a search had to be a physical intrusion on someone's private property. Now in this case, it might still have applied because it was her purse. But um, in 1967, the court holds that actually the Fourth Amendment protects privacy more than property. It doesn't say it doesn't protect property, but it says it protects privacy more than property. And so then it articulates, it's probably one of the most important and famous concurrences in all of Supreme Court history, where Justice Harlan says, well, he, I agree with the court, but they didn't quite make clear how you replace property with privacy. And then he articulates this two-pronged test in the Katz case, very famous concurrence. And basically everybody after 1967 took that to be the Supreme Court's authoritative interpretation of the fourth amendment including the court itself and they started using this reasonable expectation of privacy tests but they made that up in 1967 actually justice harlan made it oh. up in 67. wow
1: well, thank you that's very, that's very interesting and uh, just to mention that again just in case somebody wants to, to follow up on this and look into that case further um, i wanted to get to laura this is um, going back to the question of parents again um, well, I guess not quite, but something along those lines. Uh, Laura asked earlier, "Does the court not deal with the issue of a minor being unable to consent to a search? Mm-hmm. Does that come up in this case? The question of whether minors should be able should have to consent to a search or not?" Laura's question is, "Does the court not deal with the issue of a minor being unable to consent to a search?" And I think she asked that as a follow up, possibly to the question of in, in *parentis loco* mm-hmm. that you addressed earlier. If, if anybody want to tackle that, Go ahead, well,
0: I, I, yeah. I think um, you know what the court is is essentially saying here is if reasonable suspicion is found, it doesn't matter whether the student consents or not. Um, the school official has the authority to conduct the search at that point uh, if, if again, reasonable suspicion uh, is is discovered. Uh, the, the only thing in this case that comes up with the, the fact she's a minor actually had to do with uh, a confession that she gave at the police station uh, that the appeals court um, held was, uh, was unconstitutional and uh, sent back to the trial court for, uh, for relitigation litigation um, on, on a, a separate issue. Um, as it turned out, TLO didn't want to really pursue that on appeal, and so it didn't go anywhere. Um, But I think that's, that's essentially one of the things the court is saying here is in the school environment, um, you know, consent is not really an an issue, Um, it doesn't matter whether you're saying, well, I give you permission to search my bag, or I give you permission to, um, you know, the question is, if you fall under reasonable suspicion, um, the school official has the authority to search your bag, search your purse, search your wallet, search whatever it is that they believe uh, holds illegal or you know against school rules uh, contraband.
1: That's amazing, and, 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 and Eric, that leads I think maybe to a question that Candy submitted about dog uh, drug-sniffing dogs coming to classrooms. Uh, uh, she points out that during the when the drug dogs come into the classroom during random searches, uh, backpacks remain in the room. Students step outside. They could have things on them, not not in their backpacks um but what about what about dog searches i mean maybe this is getting too specific but but it's again based on the little i know about this actually it's candy seems to be right when she says that when they bring dogs into schools it's a random search how is that how is that consistent with the idea that there has to be some reasonable suspicion or is it just based on the assumption that students are high school students or middle school students are It's reasonable to suspect that they're doing drugs.
2: (laughs) No, it's not actually based on that. (laughs) Okay. all right. uh, The court had held um, just prior to this in 1983, it's a case called USV Place, if anybody's interested. Um, They had held actually that a dog sniff is not a search. (laughs)
1: How is that not a search? because it's done (laughs) by a dog and not a
2: human being? It's done by a dog. Yeah, what they said is they said, well, for two reasons. One is that it's minimally intrusive. So it's not like they're actually going through your stuff. And the second thing they said is dogs are sniffing for contraband. So it's a drug sniffing dog. Right. And the court held that you don't society is not prepared. They went back to the cat's test and they said second prong. You might want your marijuana to be secret, to be private, but society is not prepared to accept that you have a legitimate expectation of privacy in contraband. So as long as the, dr- the dogs are sniffing for contraband, they can sniff in airports, they can sniff around cars, they can sniff. They can't sniff at checkpoints that aren't drug-related, but they can sniff a lot of places um, for bombs or drugs because you don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy in those things. So the court says so. They're not. A, they're not actually a search. They're. They're police um, appropriation of information
1: wow okay that's amazing so so because those things are illegal it's illegal for me to have drugs i i I don't have a right to them the dog can sniff and search and and, uh, point or bark or do whatever and and alert somebody that i have drugs on me um but because i i don't have a right to have that whatever it is that's illegal in the first place it's yeah it's perfectly acceptable for them to do so if i so if i'm in an airport and i don't have anything illegal on me and a a dog comes up and sniffs me that's not really a search
2: yeah well it's interesting the court held in 83 it's not a search and a couple of the justices actually said whoa 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 let's not say this they didn't actually need to decide it was a strange case but they didn't need to decide the fourth amendment issue there was a fifth amendment issue at, at issue there and they decided to decide both of the issues and a couple of the justices who concurred said whoa 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 Let's just decide this on Fifth Amendment grounds, not Fourth Amendment grounds, because this whole dog sniff thing is kind of new. We're not really sure about this. But the court ran with it anyways, and since then, that's been pretty binding precedent.
1: Now, in case you haven't noticed, we have started to venture outside of the school boundaries here. because Oh, can I add one to... thing about the
2: school situation, oh, though? Please, yeah, please go right the ahead. The one thing I will say is, unless you're in a particularly dangerous or or like a particular a place where security is of particular concern like at an airport the court has held that a dog sniff does require you won't like this but reasonable suspicion <laughs> on the part of the dog no i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah but look okay. but 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 not in a school oh come on this is yeah 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 so they held that the court the court has held, hold, has held that out in the world, the police cannot just walk along with drug-sniffing dogs and sniff civilians and citizens at random. Okay. Uh, they can't sniff you if you're pulled over at a at a checkpoint to check for um, licenses, for example. They yeah. cannot walk a dog around your car. That happened in Indianapolis in 2000. They can't walk a dog around your car unless they suspect, based on their first interview with you, that there might be drugs in your car. I see. But in the school situation. They don't need individualized suspicion to to walk a dog and sniff the lockers and uh, the kids in the room and everything else.
1: I see. So, but that's but that's just schools, as you say. Outside of schools, it's a different.
2: Outside of schools, it's different.
1: Okay. So that leads to Larry's Larry's follow up. Larry earlier was the one that asked about a clear. He wants a clear uh, explanation between probable cause and reasonable suspicion. So, is it that in a dog search, let's say. Um, in schools, they can bring a dog in. A dog detects, or uh, there's a term for it. I forget what the term is, but a dog uh, detects something. Does that then give the searching officer probable cause or reasonable suspicion to, to conduct an individual search of a particular student? Or does it matter? Does the distinction matter then?
2: Well, no, at that at that point it does matter, and it's uh, dogs a positive dog sniff with a dog that's been well trained with an experienced handler. Those are all, you know, it's not me walking my dog through there, and I wouldn't know what I was doing. Uh-huh. If if those criteria are met, the court holds that a positive hit is probable cause.
1: I see. Okay, that's
2: perfect. Yeah, and but what's interesting is not every justice has bought into that. So Justice Ginsburg, Justice Souter uh even justice kagan and sotomayor have kind of indicated wait but dogs can make mistakes yeah they might hit on something but even a well-trained dog might miss anywhere up to almost 50 percent. sometimes at least some studies show that again eric's right you never know what to believe about studies but it and they've said so therefore maybe that's not probable cause because it's not an ironclad identification of contraband yeah Yeah, but the but the majority of supreme court has never held that they basically said um they call it the myth of the infallible dog
1: oh <laughs> that's very interesting <laughs> yeah I've been I've been sniffed a few times at airports by dogs and never been carrying any illegal contraband but still makes me nervous because of the dog because I know the dog's not uh, not perfect or the dog is is fallible um uh so as I was saying, suggesting we've we've been sort of straddling this line. I know there's the the line in the case uh, between what happens in a school and then sort of just out in the general public, and uh, 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 among um, among sort of the, the police, um, we've had a few questions along those lines. So it looks like a few people want to know. Maybe uh, I'll start with a broad question: How how does the court's decision and attempted attempt to define these things in the New Jersey uh, BPLO case how does that affect searches? outside of schools? Or does it? Does it affect that or does it not affect that? And you've started to talk a little bit about this, Jeff, uh, already in your distinction with, with dog sniffing uh, or drug sniffing dogs. But is there a broader impact um, just on sort of the general ability of the police to, uh, to to conduct searches in light of this decision? Eric, do you wanna you have any thoughts on this?
0: Well, uh, you know, wh- one of the things I'd say it did was it added to the, the, the number of exceptions uh, that the court has carved out um, to the rule that you need warrants and probable cause uh, in order to conduct a search. Um, and there's a lot of these exceptions. Now, um, you know, depending on you know what, what source you consult and stuff, uh, there's as many as 10 of these exceptions that we've we've carved out for it. Um, and, you know, one one of the things I'd, I'd point out is that uh, I did a very brief, but uh, did a survey of law review articles that were done on the TLO case. And, uh, you know, interestingly, there was a poll that was taken of the American Bar Association when this case was before the Supreme Court, and 54% of ABA lawyers had said that they'd agree with the New Jersey Supreme Court's rule on, on TLO. Um, so agree with the reasonableness standard but also agree that the search was unreasonable um, and therefore shouldn't have been allowed and uh, by extension uh, that the evidence should have been suppressed. Um, that seemed to track uh, a lot of the law review articles that I looked at. Um, the The idea that the court was being too permissive uh, of of these these types of searches and were infringing too much on student rights in schools. Um so interestingly, at least in the the Academy, um the, the the Supreme Court didn't get a whole lot of support for its decision in this case. Um, that they wow. they the perception being that they erred too much on the side of supporting school officials and allowing um, searches to take place. And that they should have done more in terms of the Fourth Amendment uh, to protect uh, students, um, but also by creating yet another exception in the Fourth Amendment, we were slowly chipping away at Fourth Amendment protections overall. And that you know eventually, when you have too many of these exceptions, the exceptions come to define the rule. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we we st- we stop worrying about warrant requirements and we stop worrying about probable right. cause and we start going well everything just becomes kind of reasonableness at that point um, and th- that that seems to be you know as, as much as one to so i i was kind of fascinated by seeing what uh, you know the the legal community uh, how they responded to this case and yeah, it wasn't particularly positive um, it it it, well, it had a very negative cast to it overall
1: that's very interesting
0: so so since you're raising you brought up you brought up the, the sort of
1: slippery slope um, thing, Eric, um, I wanted to ask both of you, this is, um, I've always tried to understand, Jeff mentioned this earlier, where uh, uh, that sometimes police do random um, stops or or what are checkpoints for, uh, they used to do it when I was younger to make sure you had, uh, um, they would pull you over and, and make you do a, a vehicle inspection or something like that, right? I don't know if they, I haven't seen those for a long time, at least not in Ohio, I know some states do this. But what about something like sobriety checkpoints? Um, I've always wondered how that doesn't count as a kind of general warrant when police set up sobriety checkpoints. And don't don't take my question the wrong way. I'm not in favor of drunk driving, but but how is that not a kind of just equivalent to a general warrant? We're going to pull everybody over and check them uh, for 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 uh, for drunk driving.
2: That's a good question. Um, the, court, this case, the court decided that in 1990, I think, in a case called um, Michigan v. Sites, S-I-T-Z, right. and it was a 5-4 decision. So actually, four justices thought it was a general warrant. Um, the, the five who sided with it said that because, because the checkpoints were connected to drunk driving and they were doing checkpoints on the road, that, that it was not a kind of warrant to search everybody for everything, but a particular a particularized reason to have it that way. Uh, But, and, and since then it kind of, they, they, you know, checkpoints were set up for other things too. So they upheld checkpoints for, um, Eric can correct me if I'm wrong, but they've upheld checkpoints for, uh, licenses and registration. They've also upheld checkpoints for looking for, um, illegal immigrants. As well, um, and, but they drew the line at checkpoints for in in 2000. A case called Indianapolis v. Edmond. They drew the line at checkpoints for just kind of let's check people to see if there any kind of criminal activity. Uh, that that they said went too far. That's clearly general. They yeah. said that as a general warrant. But what's really interesting in that case is Justice Thomas wrote in a concurrence and said, well, if you accept the 1990 decision. Then these cases are correct. But he said, but I'm not sure I accept that 1990 decision. And if I had been on the court, I might not have voted that same way. But since nobody brought this up in argument, I I guess I have to go with the majority. So it's one of those really interesting cases where if a lawyer had just thought maybe we need to argue that the site's decision ought to be overturned, if Thomas had been on the court, it might have been 5-4 against the checkpoints. But the issue wasn't raised, and so now that that's precedent, and they follow precedent.
1: That's very interesting. See, now maybe I'm maybe I'm just still living in 1774, 1775, but uh, you know, <laughs> a search warrant. I always understood a search warrant to not be general; to that it had to, um, it has to be very specific as to the particular persons. That are being searched and what's being searched for and what places are going to be searched. Uh, so I guess my perception of what a what a warrant had to be has been wrong all these all these years. No, it's of of it's,
2: it's not it's not wrong. It's just those are warrantless searches.
1: Oh, so, so, we're, so those are exceptions carved out, as Eric was saying.
2: Yeah, but as Eric was saying, the court has recognized more and more exceptions. To warrants and to probable cause, there are a lot. There are probably ten exceptions to warrant now. And with a case like today's case, TLO, you not only have exceptions to warrant, but you have exceptions to probable cause. So uh, I would say that there, yet yeah, there's definitely been more and more exceptions. And just to give you an example, um, Justice Scalia wrote in a case in in 1968, the court decided the Terry case, so that stop, question, and frisk. And the police officers there just have to have individualized suspicion to stop someone, question them and then frisk them for weapons, right? Well, Scalia said in a ca- in a later case where the court didn't just, uh, police officers didn't just frisk someone but actually felt inside their pockets and the court held, well, that went too far. You can, it, they said plain feel is okay but not grabbing and squeezing. That's a funny case. <laughs> um, but what Scalia wrote there and wrote a concurrence and said, I actually think the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment and the founders understanding of it does not allow police to stop and frisk that the founders would never have permitted such a thing. And so what police can do is stop and question. And then if the if they don't like the person's answer, they can arrest them. And then subsequent to arrest, you can you can search people, obviously So he 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 and Justice Thomas have argued. for The original meaning of the Fourth Amendment is probably, in their view, more stringent, at least with adults outside of schools, more stringent than what the court has recognized in the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah. But that's outside of schools. Inside of schools, Justice Thomas says, school officials are parents. They can do whatever parents can do to, to their children. School officials can do that to the kids. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's, that's amazing. Um, you know, I feel like this webinar so far has been one of those where I'm learning a lot, but the more I learn from YouTube, the, the, the more confused I'm getting, in a way, because it's so complicated, it is so gray, and it's so great you've got to remember all these exceptions, but it's wonderful, I love it. So, um, since you raised, uh, you, keep, you keep bringing up Justice Thomas, Jeff, and I, I think that's really useful, um, and Candy submitted a question of, uh, about um, Let's see Candy's questions. Were there other friends of the court, breach from other district states, that wanted clarification? Do we know what happened to Owens later in life? By the way, I was, was going to ask this question also. Why why the case is referred to as TLO?
2: Um, uh, because she was a minor.
1: She was a minor, so so they didn't actually publish her name in the decision. Is that right? Right. But we know it's it's Owens, I believe, right? So were there other? Uh, if I understand Candy's question correctly, were there other? Districts or states wanting clarification, I guess, of the court as well. And second question is, do we know what happened to Owens later in life? Either of you know? Or if not,
0: it's okay. I just, I don't know actually. I don't know the answer to this. I mean, th- there were friend of the court briefs. Um, I know the ACLU uh, filed briefs uh, in in support of, uh, of TLO. Um, Internet, uh, the National Teachers Council, or some organization like that, um, had had filed briefs on behalf of New Jersey. Um, a couple others had weighed in as as well. So, I mean, n- none of them none of them unpredictable or all that weird, um, given you know the nature of the case. Um, but uh, uh, they they had filed in and uh, had had weighed in uh, on on the issues and. Where they thought uh, the the different standards should come down uh, in the case, um, but uh, you know New Jersey and um, TLO were the the ones to make the primary arguments before the court, and uh, I, I don't see a lot of evidence that the court relied on the friend of the court briefs in this case, but okay. um, they okay. uh, certainly did pay a lot of attention to oral arguments with, since they ordered them twice. <laughs>
1: That's a good point. Do either of you just happen to know what happened to Owens? Just out of curiosity. No, I
2: don't actually.
0: No, I don't either. I don't know. I, I, I do know that Choplick, the assistant principal who did the searching uh, was fired from his administrative responsibilities within a year. Um, after conducting the search, he went back to teaching and then was laid off um, after doing that. And then of course, what caused him to rise to fame was the search of this girl's purse. Uh, he ended up working in a family run hand. Um, Sorry, <laughs> so, Eric, I
2: didn't hear you. Uh,
0: it, uh, he ended up working in a family run handbag boutique. Are you You just, he just can't make this you. stuff up. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, and so he was convinced uh, that his firing was a result of the search and the the lead, the lawsuit that came out of it. Um, but uh, nonetheless, he uh, did not continue his career in teaching or in, in administration afterwards. That's great. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. That's great. great. So uh, um, questions keep
1: coming to me as we sort of start to wrap up here uh, pretty soon. but. Uh, I wanna remind others joining us, please, if, if we've still got time for some more questions. If you wanna submit a few more questions, please feel free to do so. But uh, Jeff, again, you mentioned a couple of times Thomas and how Thomas would have, um, or, or how Thomas responded to similar questions in, in subsequent cases. Can we say something, either if you say something about just sort of the composition of the court at the time in 1985? Uh, I like to ask this question in, 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 in every webinar what's the what's the leaning of the court in general how would you describe the composition of the court and maybe maybe how does that if it does how does that have a bearing on the on the decision of course we know the opinions but how would you describe the court in 1985 are there other justices yeah that's a
2: great question please i would i mean i would describe it as centrist if you want to put these kind of labels on things so who like that's justice white who wrote the opinion that's justice powell that's justice o'connor Um, they're, they're clearly middle of the road. Justice Berger, maybe a little on the conservative side of that, especially on, on fourth amendment issues. Uh, and then, but then of course you have, I mean, we do have dissenters in this case, which we really haven't talked about, but you've got justice Brennan and justice Marshall who were certainly not centrists, and by their own understanding, very strongly opposed to the method, to the original meaning approach to all of this and very, very strongly in favor of, um uh, warrants and probable cause justice Brennan dissented on a lot of fourth amendment cases. So you had, uh, you know, you had people on either side, but you had a, a group in the middle who was clearly looking to do the kind of balancing that Eric was talking about. And that that's the way they wrote case cases, justice Powell and justice O'Connor and justice white constantly go back to when they're talking about constitutional rights, weighing the person's constitutional interests as they called them, versus government interests. They did that on all kinds of cases. And this would just be one example of that.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. So you mentioned Brennan uh, in the webinars this year. We haven't really had a case, I don't think, where we could talk about Brennan. But you mentioned Brennan as, as uh, well, everybody should know Brennan's extremely important and uh, I think in his own way uh, influential um, justice at this time. Um, I don't know if he actually wrote more, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, of course, was famous for writing uh, dissents. Uh, it seems to me Brennan writes uh, a lot of dissents as well as you mentioned, Jeff. Can we just say something about Brennan and his significance on the in the court in the 1980s? Do either of you, sure. do either of you mind saying something about Brennan?
2: Well, I'll say a few things, and Eric can jump in. Um, I, I, he's a very important justice. There's absolutely no question about that. By the 19, you know, he was really important. He got on the court in the fifties and he was there through the end of the eighties. And by the eighties, the court had, you know, he was a leading voice writing opinions in the fifties and sixties for the Warren court. By the time you get to the seventies and certainly the eighties and the court starts to swing back a bit, he becomes a minority voice in the court where he had been much more in the majority previously. So by, by this time he's pretty used to dissenting, especially on fourth amendment kind of cases. Right.
1: Because I, I know him more for his dissents, interestingly yeah. enough. I mean, I mean he, he, look, he's
2: not... probably the most famous and leading advocate of the living constitution approach. He was, right. un, he was open about it. He gave a speech actually in this year in 1985, it, responding to Ed Meese, Reagan's attorney general, who argued, let's we need to go back, the court needs to go back to the original understanding of the constitution. And Brennan argued, we can't do it. And even if we could, we shouldn't do it. He gave a speech to the Georgetown Law Symposium on this and he said and i and we and i refused to uh, go with this tr- trend back toward original meaning and he was really the leading advocate and maybe justice Ginsburg today is probably the closest in the, in that same uh, mold as brennan but even she probably is not quite as strong an advocate at least as open an advocate of the living constitution approach as brennan he came out of that tradition back in the 40s and 50s and he embodied it thoroughly in his own thinking and jurisprudence all the way till when he retired from the court. Uh, and I think this is an example of that.
1: Yeah, I'm very familiar with his speech that he gave uh, at Georgetown. And I think it's called to the Text and Teaching T- Text and Teaching Symposium.
0: Yeah. Where he lays out very clearly
1: his living constitutional arguments. So, so uh, would you say, um, uh, Eric? Feel free to jump in on this as well if you'd like. Um, Is it the 1980s when we start to see the term, Jeff, you mentioned it swings back a little bit? Is that where we see more and more originalist judges, so to speak? Again, go ahead and beat me up if you want over these labels, if you don't like these labels. But um, it seems to me that we get that the idea that a justice can be originalist becomes much more, um, I would say, important, but at least more. somehow more known or seems to be more important in the public mind that a judge is considered originalist after the 1980s uh is it, it let me ask you a question more clearly is it true that there are more originalist judges on the court after the mid-1980s or or were there already they just didn't consider themselves originalists eric do, do you know about the
0: composition of the court i know you do at that time. yeah i, I mean I, I think it's true that you know, after after the 80s, we, we get more of these, you know, originalists or textualist judges um, that are coming on the court. Um, some of that is, you know, a concerted push uh, that was made in the early 1980s uh, by a group called the Federalist Society uh, that was, I think, founded at the University of Chicago or was was Chicago was maybe its second home. Uh, but Scalia was one of its first advisors. Um, and the whole goal of, of the Federalist Society was to produce more of these textualist judges, uh, and to try to get them interested in public law, try to get them interested in taking position as federal judges, and then position them for runs, you know, up to the Supreme Court, uh, so they they could be selected and influence public policy and influence uh, the, the the courts overall. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say, you know, textualism itself really starts to come into its own um, in the 80s and, and 90s, becomes a more discernible philosophy, um, you know, a, a discernible judicial approach uh, that, that that's, uh, is, is taken on. Uh, but there is a lot of nuance and texture um, to textualism. It's It's not a lot of times it's articulated as just asking what the founders would do, and that's not actually what textualism is about. Um, it's more asking about the meaning of things in their appropriate historical context, not just asking what James Madison would have done or asking what Alexander Hamilton would have done. Um, and a, a lot of people kind of get those those conceptions confused. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, I know. For example, that's a great point, Eric. Um, which is why i he hesitated to throw the term originalist out there scalia i believe for example preferred to be called a, a known as a textualist yeah and he was a he was an originalist only in so far as, as the, the sort of understanding of the founders could be squared with the text of the constitution and then he had to write a 500 book page book to explain you know what textualism means which was right. And like, you know, just, he, he
0: also said textualism was the worst const, form of constitutional interpretation, except for all the others. Right. <laughs> uh, so yeah. That was that was his take on it.
2: Right. Uh, and what's particularly interesting to me talking about the Fourth Amendment since the rise of textualism and originalist judges is um, just because a person is an originalist does not mean you can predict where they're going to decide what they'll decide on Fourth Amendment cases. It's very interesting that way. That's not true on other on lots of other issues. If you know what if, that a person is an originalist, you you have a pretty or a textualist. You have a pretty good sense of how they might decide on commerce clause cases, just as an example. Fourth Amendment's much trickier. Uh, Scalia, as you know, one of the most famous originalist textualist types, uh, was a pretty strong. I'll call him my own my own view here, but a pretty strong defender of the Fourth Amendment, and a pretty strong in defense of, of a strict requirements for warrants and probable cause. So, And his argument was, well, that's because that was what the Fourth Amendment originally was understood to mean, and that's what the text says. So because a person is an originalist you does not mean you can tell that they're always going to vote a certain way on cases involving the Fourth Amendment. It's pretty interesting, and even originalists now, like Justice Thomas, and then if you say, oh, I don't know, um, well, Justice Scalia, what it means to be an originalist for Fourth Amendment rights in schools, they have different opinions on that because they have different understandings of what the original understanding of a school was and whether school officials were in loco parentis or not and so originalists might employ the same method but they might come up with very different results and you see that a lot in these fourth amendment cases
1: yeah that's great jeff i'm, I'm glad you went that direction because usually we get a question we didn't get one this time i'm surprised but usually we get a question asking about something like uh, uh how judges or justices on the current supreme court might where where the, where they might lean on the on the same case on the New Jersey BTLO case so just as a sort of fun thing i know it's it's hard to predict as you were just saying so maybe that's the answer but but um if is there anybody on the court today uh that you might feel confident in putting a guess uh, as to where they might come down on a well, decision like Well,
2: you know, this. I don't know. They, you know, uh, uh, in, in 2009, in the Safford v. Redding case, that's the strip search of the 13-year-old girl. I, I would commend that to the folks out there who are listening if they want to, you know, how do they how have they taken TLO this case and applied it as we go on? That case was eight to one in favor of the girl who got strip searched.
1: Wow. And what year was that, Jeff? That was... That's
2: 2009. Wow. It's called okay. Safford. It's the school district's S-A-F-F-O-R-D v. reading. Okay. Um, so, you know, so they they took they accept the TLO precedent as the right test. But when they applied it to that case, they just said, no, but the school officials went way too far given what they were searching for. And it was eight to one with only Justice Thomas dissenting, because, again, his view was, well, the schools are in local parentis so they can search however they want for whatever they want. But none of the other justices, including many of those who are on the court now, right? Including those folks, they did not go that way. They they went with the court's view from TLO and said this was an unreasonable search. Wow. So how they would decide the TLO case originally? Hard to say. But they now accept it as binding precedent and they've used it to occasionally strike down searches.
1: Oh, that was that's great. That was going to lead to my last question. We just we just have a minute or two left, but um, where does the TLO case stand today? It's still, it's still standing law, right? I mean, it's still a
2: yeah. precedent.
1: Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: All right. it, it's standing law and it's binding and uh, for the lower courts. And as Eric said, they've, they've, they've tried to work this out over time, what reasonableness is. And, and it's been extended to things like drug testing for athletes, extracurricular students. And, and, you know, the truth is we always end up looking so much at the Supreme court to define the meaning of the constitution. But, The Constitution's meaning is, in a way, defined every day, uh, that schools are in operation and school officials have to formulate policy and then act on that policy, and it gets lived out by teachers and school officials all the time, every day. They're the ones who are doing most, most of, even if they don't know it, and I think most of the times they do know it, they're the ones who are doing a lot of the constitutional interpretation here. Yeah.
1: That's a great point. Well, and um, maybe a great point to to, to wrap up on. Uh, and Erica, did, did you have a? don't mean to cut you off. If you had anything else you
0: wanted to. No, I, I completely agree with that. And, and you know, I think it's it's one of the inherent dangers of of focusing too narrowly on the Supreme Court in the study of the judiciary, yeah. um, when 99% of of law is being made in the federal courts. Or in the state supreme courts, um, we we really ought not lose sight of, of what's going on um, at those different uh, state court levels um, and and what's happening there. Um, you know, we we talked about drug testing, but uh, you know, another area that the states have really taken the lead have been on metal detectors uh, and the use of metal detectors in schools. Oh, yeah. And um, pretty universally, the states have held that the use of the metal detectors is constitutional and consistent with the TLO opinion um so uh, yeah i think those are those are important things to keep in mind
1: yeah those are g- great points eric and jeff uh, i think that's a great way to wrap up not only this webinar but our whole series with some reminders about the about the role of the, the, uh, the federal courts and especially emphasis on the supreme court so thank you both very much for being uh things that been really really enlightening um and i really do appreciate your time and, thought and your expertise
2: on this is outstanding well, thanks very um, much glad to be here thank yeah, you
1: great. and also thanks for submitting questions for those of you who joined us today really appreciate those questions uh, just a quick reminder that uh, again you'll receive an email with a link for your certificate of participation uh, i want to mention that um, uh, we'll be back in the fall with two new series of webinars uh, one will be uh, again a series of saturday webinars and our theme um, for next next fall Saturday webinars will be moments of crisis. So we'll pick some particular moments in history that rise to the levels of important uh, decision-making and, and focus on each one of those in a series of 10 web- webinars on Saturday, starting late summer, early fall. And we're also adding a, a webinar series on Wednesday evenings in which uh, Dr. John Moser will lead a discussion on a particular document chosen from among the list of 50 core documents which was published by the ashbrook center if you want to find out more about these webinar series go to tah.org you can find out um, uh, information about the series and also register for those series in advance if you'd like to so take advantage of those um hope to see you then and until then best wishes and take care jeff and and eric thanks again that was really really wonderful Uh
0: Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.